0: Good morning and welcome to the david and david on real estate podcast we are back at you with discussing more legal precedents on episode number 98 and of course david corman david gorski in the house welcome back everybody
1: yeah great to be back and and last episode we were talking about a case called Bazin and it, and it, which wasn't a real estate case, but it raises this legal principle and concept of parties to contract to acting in good faith when in their dealings, and then how that relates to real estate transactions. And then there was another case called uh, Callow and Zollinger that sort of followed that. And um, again, it wasn't a, a real estate case directly, although there was some real estate behind it. It was really about uh companies to a contract. There was property management involved and um and then rights to renew those contract and they they weren't and they sued each other. And the the again it was an issue of can we rely on the strict contract that gives certain rights or do we have to look at the facts and what the parties did behind the scenes. And if they weren't acting in good faith, do they lose their rights to rely on their strict contractual rights? So, so that's where we are. But now we have today, we're going to actually talk about a real estate case.
0: Yeah, very exciting. And and this case kind of takes all those principles and puts them into action because um, the courts have r- really taken a look at, at the precedents and said, well, you know, this not only applies to the buyer, but it have, actually applies to all parties in the transaction to act in good faith and, and to fulfill their contractual obligation, which is to bring the transaction to a close.
1: Right. So the case that, we're, that we want to discuss today is is called Moore and, and a numbered company, which were the plaintiffs. But this was a court of appeal decision in Ontario dealing with an actual real estate decision. And, and you know, the simple facts, which are sort of important here, you know, they, they signed a, a standard type of agreement of purchase and sale um, you know, that has a clause in it that we've talked about, uh, you know, a few times in our podcast. So the time is of the essence. So that means that, you know, if there's a any dates and times referred to in the contract, those strictly have to be adhered to. So the time for the revocable date, the time for any conditions, the time for the, the closing date, obviously, the time for your title search. You have to strictly adhere to those in order. Otherwise, you're in breach of the contract. But here is a case, you know, the transaction is moving towards closing in the normal course, uh, but on the day of closing, the buyer solicitor wasn't able to deliver the funds by five o'clock on the day of closing. Now, the facts behind the scene, this happens to be a COVID situation when this came up, when parties were experiencing, everybody was experiencing difficulty in getting funds transferred on time. Banks had reduced hours you know, et cetera, et cetera, as we can all remember what was going on during the pandemic. And this was just a classic example of that where they were, they were the, the transfer was in the works, but they couldn't actually get it transferred to the seller's lawyer in time. So the buyer's lawyer had money, was in the process of transferring it, but couldn't get it transferred by five o'clock. And the seller took the strict position. Hey, time is of the essence. You didn't get us money on time. You're in breach, deal's dead. Goodbye, we're selling to somebody else. And obviously there must have been some advantage to the seller to try and resell the property to somebody else. So that's basically the facts as I understand it, David.
0: And very interesting because um, the buyer's lawyer communicated nonstop with the seller's lawyer that they have the funds, that the buyer has an intent to close the transaction that they want to close the transaction, but there was, you know, uh, some sort of obstacle with the land transfer system, whether it was a timing issue, but not, you know, throughout the day, the two lawyer offices were communicating. They communicated that they have funds, that there is an intent to close, and the seller's solicitor to the position, well, we didn't receive the funds at five o'clock. You're in breach. We're canceling the transaction. We're going to take your firstborn. And, and this transaction is not happening. Now, when this went in front of the court system, um, the judge looked at the case and said, well, the seller really hasn't acted in good faith. Because the buyer did absolutely everything they possibly could, including delivering funds and trust in his seller's um, solicitor account. So there was every evidence that the buyer acted in good faith and wanted to close. It was just outside the realm of possibilities. So the seller has to take an equal position and and, really meet the buyer halfway and, and move towards... The successful completion of the transaction so they can't cancel the deal on a technicality which um, you know i think it reinforces this whole concept that we were talking about in a previous um, episode where both parties have to act in good faith and bring the transaction to a close Um, And and David, I know your office is really big on this. You know, you guys are really big on, you know, bringing the transaction to a final close, making sure that, you know, we don't cause problems where there are no problems and, and really furthering the transaction to make sure that both parties are working towards that final completion of the contract, which is what we want to see.
1: Right. And, and in this case, like in any case, you have to look at what the actual facts were. And there was nothing, there was no legal issues between the parties. There wasn't something going on in the transaction where one party was, you know, I don't want to close or I'm not sure if I close or take any legal positions. This became strictly a, a timing issue. And a lot of it, you know, innocently caused because of pandemic issues, which people couldn't necessarily contemplate even entering into the contract. And it just, just the banking took time. So here the seller, the buyer's lawyer had money. Was able to communicate to the so I've got money, but I can't. But the, the, just the transfer to your trust account isn't going through. But here's evidence that I have it. We want to close. We're ready. We'll enable documents have been signed. Everything's been exchanged. There's no issues. It's just this timing issue. So and and the the facts go on. Like the next morning, the buyer's lawyer transferred the funds to the seller's uh, lawyer's trust account. So there's no real loss or damage to the seller. They're getting exactly what they were expecting to do when they signed the contract. So when the courts look at this, they're saying, no, no, no. Like there's a duty on you as a seller to act in good faith. You weren't asked for an extension for a month or for a week or for a day, even on unreasonable terms. You have no loss to you. You got to, you, you signed a contract to sell the property. The property was sold. You got all your money. There's no reason to rely on the strict interpretation of the contract so it it reinforces this concept of parties have to still act in good faith they can't look for a technical default and rely purely on a technical default in order to gain an advantage okay And, and that's a really important concept so in our office we're very mindful of this concept of good faith so you know we're involved in negotiating extensions all the time. And we just did one over the last few days where these issues came into play. We're acting, we're on the seller side of this one. Everything, you know, our client's ready to close. We're all good. The buyer can't get their mortgage funding together and tell us on closing, they can't get their mortgage funding together and ask for an extension. And then we grant terms of an extension. Now they can't close on the extension date and they're asking for further extensions. So in our negotiations with them, even though we could take a strict position, you, you weren't ready, willing not able to close, we're going to sue you, we're going to sell to somebody else, we do all that. But we still have to make some effort to act in good faith to figure out if they do have an ability to close, then we have to see if we can come to terms with that. You know, Protect our client, make sure they're covered for all their costs. But make sure that that the evidence will show in the facts that we negotiated in good faith to try and get this done. So even in what we're requesting as extension terms, we have to try and show that we're you know we're not asking for onerous, unreasonable things. And maybe there's some give and take in our negotiation. Yeah, we you know you you they balked at certain points in extension, and we and we gave into that, and we wanted other things because we have an ability to show a judge down the road if we have to. That we were always acting in good faith, trying to see if there's a way to get the transaction done instead of just relying on our legal principles.
0: Yeah, you actually took my question out of my mouth, David, because I was going to ask if if this process or 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 this case uh, leads to the principle of of you know negotiating extensions, right, and and not taking the strict position that oh you're in breach, life is over. know and 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 we have all these rights as a seller so that was gonna be my next question is does this constitute and sort of lead into the conversation of you know are our parties you know bound to work together and 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 really work through some of these extensions to solve these issues
1: yeah it it definitely affects it in my my mind my legal mind how i want to negotiate an extension even if i'm on the innocent party side of this like in this one that I was just talking about so originally like our client says okay I'm prepared to extend but we want uh, an additional deposit we want a release of the deposit held by by the broker we want to pay for all our costs because we're carrying a mortgage and a bridge loan and insurance costs and all that so so we put all that together then the other side box at well you know, we can't give you as much of an additional deposit as you want. And we're not sure we want the, the the initial deposit being released to you right away by the broker. Like there's no prejudice to you. If, because if we default on the, on the extension closing date, you still have the same rights. You can still get that released to you. So I sat down with you know, one of our associate lawyers on this to discuss this. You know what? Like, it's probably reasonable for us to give in a little bit on on a couple of these points because there isn't really a prejudice to our client. If they close on the extension date, new date, great. If they don't, and this goes to court, we have evidence of a back and forth negotiation that we were acting in good faith to come to reasonable terms as opposed to now we were just hammering them with onerous terms that they couldn't meet. And because they couldn't meet it, we pulled the plug on the transaction. So, I think we have to, as lawyers, look at this a little bit differently and make sure that whatever we're doing for even our innocent client, there's some element of give and take and acting in good faith on it and not just hammering them.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's important. It's an important message for to our industry. It's an important message to other lawyers. And there's this whole concept of working together towards a successful transaction, even if something uh, um, gets tough along the way.
1: Yeah, and, and my role as, you know, as a lawyer on a transaction is, is to protect my client. But I'll argue till the end of time that I'm best serving my client in most instances by finding a way to get the transaction closed.
0: 1,000%.
1: Even with a buyer that, you know, that they couldn't even in this particular case, they couldn't even show us they had a mortgage commitment. So, you know, it's different. They have a mortgage commitment that says, yeah, yeah, we need a week and the, and the lenders confirm, yeah, we can close a week. From now that's sort of easier. Here, we didn't even have a mortgage commitment, but it still made sense to try and give them some time to get their act together, as opposed to just pulling the plug and listing it in a, in a down market and selling to someone else and hoping, well, if, it, if we don't close, we can just sue them for damages. Well, you never know you're going to have an ability to pay those damages or, or you can recover that. And that's a long, expensive process, even if you're the innocent party. So I'm always of the view where we serve our clients best if we tr- explore every opportunity to try get a transaction closed.
0: Yeah. And and David, I, I love the way you write your extension letters. You know, you basically write, we have taken the following legal stance. Um, we reserve all our rights. You know, we're going to take your firstborn. However, in the spirit of moving this along, if you agree to the following, we'll work with you. Right. And uh, that's a great legal right. position to stand because um, it shows the other side. What the law is, if they if they default, and we all know that the courts have consistently ruled against the defaulting party. However, you're also showing the spirit of good faith where you're giving them options and you're working with them to try to come bring this to a successful close
1: right. And we throw in there it is without prejudice to our rights. So we're saying exactly what you said, David. You're in breach. We can take your firstborn, we have certain legal rights against you, but, so, and so we're taking that position. However, without prejudice to those rights, we're prepared to extend on certain terms and conditions unless try and negotiate something in, in good faith to see if we could work it out. We terminate the transaction and we take that strict legal position, I'm always encouraging the lawyers in my office to still communicate with the other lawyer to say, Hey, yeah, we terminated, we're, you know, we we have no choice here and we're going to put it and everything, but if you get your act together and you get your mortgage finding, let us know, you know, because before, and I even tell them before we sell to somebody, we have an offer to sell to a third party before we actually accept that, I might go back to that first buyer and the buyer's lawyer and say, Hey, did you get your act together? Because if you do, it might be a faster closing at a, at a price that our client's still happy with to still resurrect that transaction. And if we can put that back together, than just going to the next buyer. So I think we've got to keep those concepts open because bottom line, David, like we're, we're trying to get a, the transaction closed for our mutual client, right? And, and the agent's involvement in this is always really critical, telling us, giving us information what's going on in the market. Are we likely to sell to somebody else? What's our, what, what's our price going to be if we sell to the next buyer, what's the market like, you know, is, is it dead? Are we getting showings? You know, there's so much information that we need from the state agent too, in order to make those proper decisions. So again, it's the teamwork of lawyer and agent helping you know us through this transition. Uh,
0: David, I think you talked, touched on such an important point. I'm going to, say this again for everybody listening so if there is a breached party that cannot complete a transaction when the property goes to the market david corman's office recommends that you put in in a subsequently accepted uh aps put a condition on there in favor of the seller you know going back to the first offer And and giving them an opportunity to renegotiate and come back to a transaction. Because what that avoids, if there's a big discrepancy in price between the first offer and the subsequently accepted offer it alleviates the fact of going through a whole litigation and a court system to you know bring those damages and reimburse the seller so i i love that concept i think it's it's absolutely genius i think it creates a whole 360 loop where you know acting in good faith you're trying to give that first uh, party as much time as possible and if they still say no at that point your case becomes so much stronger and now you've demonstrated that you've gone over and above, you've given them multiple opportunities, you've negotiated with them, you've granted extensions, you've negotiated through subsequent extensions. And even before accepting a subsequent um, agreement of purchase and sale, that's lower, you're still giving them an opportunity to come back to the table and, 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 relive the the initial deal it's it's fantastic and I think you know if that sort of case goes in front of the courts then the judge would look at the case and say oh my god like you know you took the concept of acting good faith to a whole different level and this is a, a slam dunk case and I don't even have to really look at this in too much detail I'm awarding full damages to to the injured party. So I think it it takes this concept and it creates a whole 360 and really closes in the loop. Um and the other thing it does David is people are going to stop going through court, right? If they see that, you know, 50 of these cases went to court, there's there's really no defense for breach of contract. Courts have consistently ruled for the injured party. At the end of the day, buyers are going to say well, why am I not closing? Why am I, you know, not fulfilling my contractual obligation? I have to do whatever I can, you know, be it sell my house at a lower price, be it pay a higher mortgage, borrow money. I need to do whatever I need to do to make sure that I fulfill my contractual obligations. And what it does is it adds trust and stability to the system you know are we're so fortunate to have such a structured mls system to have such a structured conveyance system to have such a structured um way that we buy and sell real estate and i think you know this this whole concept of acting in good faith and the way that the courts have ruled uh in these court cases adds a lot of confidence to the system
1: yeah it does and and they, they aren't conflicting principles when it's when you're relying on the times of the essence and good faith, they're not in really in conflict with each other, they work together hand in hand, because you have certain rights created by your the contractual language. On the other hand, the facts do matter, and your conduct does matter, and you still have to act honestly and in good faith, or you lose those contractual rights. So I think the courts are interpreting these things properly. I think us in the industry are recognizing that. And and like you said, David, this will create people not having more legal decisions with judgments at the end of the day, even if if there's a dispute and parties lay out their position to the other side and, and can demonstrate that they acted not only in accordance with their contract, but then they also took steps to act in good faith. That's going to push parties to settle. So you're not going to get judgments at the end of the day. So even though there's lots of stuff pending in courts, right now with defaulting uh, transactions that, you know, didn't go through, most of them will settle because when the lawyers actually sit down and look at the facts and look at the arguments here, it's easier to figure out that, you know, this doesn't have to, you know, but they know what the judgment's going to be at the end of the day. So that's incentive to settle and get rid of it and don't wait to get hammered by a judge.
0: And by settling, I mean, I, you know, I'm hopeful that, the buyer or or the party in breach realizes that, you know, they have a legal and, and a principal obligation to move forward the transaction, right? So, you know, I don't want people to use th- this as an excuse to renegotiate price or, or anything like that. It has to be the strict um, performance of the contract that we're aiming towards uh, in its entirety, uh, and I think that's going to give confidence to the system
1: yeah and we just have to be mindful you know the words position like in this particular case like they put language right into their decision that said um you know that there there was a a duty to cooperate and attempt to complete the transaction in good faith and and here there was a delay that was out of control out of the control of the the buyer you know because of pandemic issues and bank issues and stuff like that and that should not be pounced upon is what the judgment said by the seller in that situation to take advantage of it yeah. so you know and we're on we're on both sides of these transactions we're acting for the innocent side sometimes something to accident. but the same concept same principles apply and we have be mindful of them to try and get these things the transactions closed which is always the number one interest for our clients right
0: absolutely David Corman thank you so much this has been amazing and uh, the message is clear to our industry work together and make sure that you know we're working towards closing these transactions together thank you everybody join us next time on our episodes we're going to talk about another really interesting legal issues as it affects the deposits and brokerages.